the idea behind doing your best is admirable because what we're saying is you know you don't have to be perfect that's what we're trying to say but if you've got a kid who's really really bright tends to be a little bit perfectionistic it's an impossible ask you're saying to them you know be perfect that's how they interpret best doing my best well it's never good enough and so that drives a lot of procrastination in students is what i've seen Welcome to the Parenting ADHD podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Janine Janot about what to do when our smart kids are struggling. And I know this is such a common experience for our families. It was certainly my own story with my own son. And so I'm really excited to share some strategies and some insights on what we can do to help, what we can do when we see that they're bright and they're just not able to maybe succeed academically. Thanks for being here, Janine. Will you start just by introducing yourself? Let everyone know who you are and what you do. Thanks, Penny. It's really wonderful to be here talking to you about this. So my background is psychology, school psychology, and um, I have a doctorate in child and developmental psychology. But what I currently do is I do academic coaching. I have a business called The Balanced Student where I see middle school, high school, and college students. and I'm really trying to address not only the academic piece, but sort of the whole wellness piece with our students in today's Mm -hmm. high stakes achievement culture. And that comes out of it's sort of interesting. How I ended up doing this was I had a kid in elementary school, middle school and high school, and I started teaching college. And I had this amazing like 20,000 foot (laughs) view down on what was happening in education. And it was frightening to me, especially what I was seeing the kind of end result in the college student. So I was teaching psychology courses, intro level and freshman seminars. So I was sort of seeing that new college freshman mm-hmm. type student and they were so overwhelmed, yeah. lacking in so many skills. And it had nothing to do with how bright they were. They were just struggling. And I was seeing it ticking down into like the elementary schools where I was seeing a lot of anxiety too. So that kind of the long story of how I ended up saying, okay, somebody needs to help these kids. And so I designed my coaching around sort of pinpointing the issues our kids are facing that are causing them to struggle. That's largely driven by the high stakes, high pressure achievement culture that they're being educated in. Yeah. And the pressure starts right away kindergarten yeah too soon starting so early now way too soon and yeah by the time they get to i'm seeing a lot more high school students who are just fed up they're like i can't do more school right now Mm -hmm. i can't move on yet because i think it's just been too much pressure for too long but i love that you brought up wellness not just academics but whole child wellness because you know, I see a lot of high achievers and there's a lot of anxiety with that. There's a lot of the pressure that we were just talking about. And it's super tough to really, really succeed academically. I think that it's 
difficult for most kids and it affects them in a lot of ways. It affects their whole being, right? Oh, absolutely. And just when you think of the motivation and particularly coming out of what happened last year with a lot of remote learning and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of going in, you know, parents might send their students to talk with me or see me virtually. And there's definitely skills and strategies and things that are really helpful. But if you can't address the child who's burned out or has no motivation or is self-sabotaging because of anxiety around, you know, this is really hard and I really don't know what to do. If they can't even get to that point where they can do the work to put in place or try a strategy or skill, that's a real problem. And I think more kids than we realize are in that space. Yeah. And I feel like when the kids feel good and feel confident and capable, the academic piece falls into place. Absolutely. We need to be focused on how they're doing outside of the academics to help the academics. Mm -hmm. And you just mentioned two of the three things that are required for any of us human beings to be motivated, having some control, some autonomy over the situation, Mm -hmm. feeling like you're competent. And the other piece of it is that connection or, you know, the belonging piece is important to feel like there's some meaning behind what you're doing. And when you think of those three things and you think about students, particularly our middle school, high school, college students, they really struggle on all three fronts there. Mm -hmm. And I think that that struggle with control happens a lot more for kids who have learning challenges too, and to understand why they're learning what they're learning. You know, my own son who graduated last January really struggled with being open and willing to learn what he was being forced to learn. He didn't understand why he needed it. And he got really stuck on that, which is, I think, a good part of, you know, the autistic part of his thinking. It really held him back. Mm -hmm. He really struggled with, how does this translate to life? Why do I really have to do this? Why do I really need to learn this? And I think we're missing that in education. We have been for a long time. I feel like that would be so helpful if we started really trying to relate education to real life, what they do when they leave. Oh, absolutely. And the validity in his <laughs> pushing back on that is is high. Yeah, makes sense. It makes total sense. It just doesn't work in today's high stakes achievement culture mm-hmm. because it is a formulated check the box. That's what's been reinforced over the last couple of decades and it's gotten worse and worse. And so Our students aren't going in as organic learners anymore. That gets kind of bred out of them pretty early. By about third grade, they're all about, Mm -hmm. I got to check the box. I got to get this assignment done. I have to read this many books. I have to do this. I have to do that. Are are you interested in what you're learning? No, not really. I don't really care. I just want to get the A. And I hear that, you know, by the time they get to high school, they just sort of outwardly say, no, I'm not really too worried about the learning piece. I really just need to get the A so my GPA stays at this and I need to get this score on the SAT, ACT. And it's all about the checking the box. And that's not very fun and not very meaningful. And then they come into college and I'll have, you know, I was teaching intro psych and some of my students would come in having taken AP psych. And yeah, almost always they would say, oh, I don't remember anything from that class. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so, yeah. so to what end are our students doing this? Yeah. <laughs> and there's so many places we could I go know. with that. You know, it's <laughs> such a loaded 
the whole educational system is just such a loaded conversation right now. And I, it is. And, it, and it's so much harder for our kids with learning challenges, ADHD, autism, you know, learning disabilities specifically, it layers on the lack of connection, the lack of a sense of control, the lack of confidence, right? So we worry about why are our kids not motivated? Well, they're missing all three of those pieces a lot of times when school is even harder for them, when connecting socially is even harder for them, right? When figuring out why they're doing what they're doing is so difficult. How do we address that? How do we help our kids feel more confident, connected, in control in the current school culture? Well, I mean, one of the reasons I even bring it up is I think for a culture to start to shift, everybody has to even recognize that we're in it. And oftentimes we don't recognize the pressures from being in a culture because it's impacting, you know, our attitudes and our beliefs and our behavior. And it just sort of happens. It's like a fish in the water. You don't notice the water until somebody points it out to you. Mm -hmm. So for me on that kind of fundamental level, working with students or even talking to my own kids is to have the conversation about here's the reality, you know, that you're living through. And I recognize this. I want you to understand it. And so what are our expectations? So I get get at that personal level, you know, for you, what do you want to get out of school? What do you want your schooling to look like? What's important to you? What's not as important to you? And kind of come together with reasonable expectations. Because I, I feel like sometimes we just jump over what actually is reasonable for our family and our kids. And it's more of what's the expectation? You know, what are the neighbor kids doing? What is the school, you know? And we get kind of lost in that, understandably, because we're well-intentioned and we love our kids and we want them to be successful. But at the same time, it might not be helping them balance, again, that wellness piece, what's best for them long-term. And we want them to leave school wanting to be lifelong learners, whether that's in a career, whether it's going to college, whatever that looks like, we don't want them to lack confidence there or lack interest. Right. And so often, yeah, that's the way they leave. Mm -hmm. They leave the high school halls and then it's, what now? And not not having that motivation. You know, I mean, this is what we're going through now is college was definitely not the right fit for my son right out of high school, for sure, anytime soon after it. And we're just taking time to explore. But even just, you know, a class online and something that he's super interested in, he says, no, it feels like school. I'm not ready to do that again. I can't do that yet. And, And I've talked to parents of his neurotypical peers who are also just kind of floating, right? They're just floating along, just waiting to feel some sort of connection to something or motivation around something because they were so burned out. I'm just sitting here thinking, how in the world do we possibly prevent that burnout for our kids when we as parents are sort of forced into that culture, right? We could homeschool or we could maybe find a private school that was more aligned with the way our kids think and learn and, and their challenges, which certainly isn't accessible for all. How do we do it in public education? That's a big ask. <laughs> right? And I think it's, you know, it's it's way above my pay grade, but I do think it's the conversation that needs to be happening mm-hmm. because it's affecting all of our kids, you know, not just our bright kids, not just our 
neuroatypical kids, it's impacting all of our kids. But I do think it starts grassroots because we tend to go top down in dealing with these kinds mm-hmm. of issues where, you know, we go from, you know, the politicians to the the societal expectation to the employers, the colleges, the schools. Then we get down to teachers, students, and parents. And it needs to go the exact opposite direction. You know, parents and students and teachers know best how to educate kids and to help them learn and and that whole wellness piece. And they need to be one that's pushing practice and policy and programs. And then there should be responsiveness up the chain. And that should be driving what the colleges are looking for, which will impact, you know, what the high schools are doing and, you know, what the job market Mm -hmm. wants. That's what I'd like to see. Again, huge ask. But I think that's big picture what needs to happen. And, And I feel like baby steps maybe is a little bit starting to. Yeah. And I think as parents, you know, we have to have those conversations with the school, with our kids' teachers. It starts with exactly what you were just talking about, setting appropriate expectations for your child individualized, completely throw out all neurotypical expectations and create some expectations that are completely doable for your child with, you know, who they are, where they are, and how their brain works. And then try to get their specific teachers, their school administrators on board with that. And that's a big ask too. Mm -hmm, (laughs) You know, that's a lot of work too. And, you know, I did it for 13 years and with a little bit of success here and there, you know, really not shifting his experience very much, which was really a hard pill to swallow. You know, I worked really hard at it. I begged, I pleaded, I had probably 100 or more meetings, thousands of emails. And, you know, he still left just kind of feeling down about himself, which is really tragic. Honestly, it's really, it's not just him. It's so many kids and it's so many. It's so hard to deal with. But we're going to focus on each person's individual kid and the conversations that you need to have with educators and with your kids. You know, I love that when you talked about setting expectations, it's a conversation with your child. It's not a single parent or co-parent sitting down and figuring out what they expect. It's a conversation with your child. Figure out what they can do, what is doable, what is a little bit of a challenge, right? And then building from there, tiny steps forward. Absolutely. And that's hitting those three things to give them more confidence and motivation. It's giving them some control in the situation, some Mm buy-in. You're sharing with them, you have confidence in them. Let's set this up so that you will be successful. Mm -hmm. And you're making that connection with them. It doesn't have to be everybody on board being supportive in that way. It takes one or two significant adults in a student's life to make a huge difference. So just having that conversation with your child will go quite a ways. And one other thing I think is important when we're thinking about our individual kids is generally speaking, what comes to me, and I wrote the book, The Disintegrating Student, because of the type of students that were coming to see me and they were surprisingly bright (laughs) and gifted and lots of them neuroatypical. So it was the fact that these kids had spent years just sort of going through school without issues and in elementary school, just kind of loving learning, showing up in class, getting good grades, getting their homework done in school on the bus and just getting A's on their tests by not even studying just because they heard the information. So they're like these awesome students. We tell them how smart they are for years and years and years. 
And then they hit that wall of rigor, which is a place where basically their ability starts to be stretched, yeah. you know, because of the amount of rigor and the challenge that they're experiencing, which is ticking downward, like we mentioned. So, you know, I'm starting to see a lot of middle schoolers, seventh and eighth graders taking ninth, 10th high school work in those middle school years. And, you know, they're not quite ready for it. And what we don't recognize sometimes as parents of our kids is that their mindset has been put in that space. It's like we call it a fixed mindset Mm -hmm. where their identity is really wrapped up in being these smart kids Yeah, and smart kids in their heads. They don't have to try. They figure it out on their own. They don't ask for help. Challenge is a sign of, you know, that I'm not smart. So it becomes very, very personal. Their self-esteem really takes a big hit. Their motivation takes a hit, their confidence, all all those things. And parents kind of look at it from the outside because you know how, you know, parenting communication is so awesome. Uh, (laughs) Parents are looking at it from the outside and think their kids just stop trying, you know, their grades are going down, they don't Mm -hmm. care anymore. And the kid's like, I have no idea what to do here. And they're afraid to admit that because smart kids should be able to figure it out. And so I see so many kids in that space. And when they kind of figure out, oh, you know, maybe it's because this is how you're thinking about this. They're like, oh, yeah, that just rings a lot of bells for me. And usually what I can do is point out if you can shift over to maybe how you play football or how you are on the debate team or you're in band and you have more of a growth mindset where you don't mind somebody helping you and coaching you and giving you feedback and you don't mind the challenge. You look at it as kind of exciting and something you're really interested in working at and putting effort in. It's the complete opposite of how they approach school. And when they can kind of recognize, oh, okay, that is, I do think differently about this thing over here that I enjoy, and this is what I'm doing with school, it can really open the door for them to work on their mindset as far as how they view themselves as a student. And that can be a good starting place. And it's a good place for parents to be talking to their kids too, to figure out, are you more in this fixed mindset space? And is that problematic for you? Yeah. So instead of telling our kids that they're smart, we need to recognize effort, right? We need to sort of praise effort and growth rather than these sort of fixed qualities that really are arbitrary anyway, right? If you're smart, you're smart, but it's what you do with it. (laughs) Well, they have no control over those things they've been praised on in Mm -hmm. that regard. So, you know, if you're like, you're just so talented, you're just so smart. It's like, cool, until it's not. And then they internalize that, that they're a failure and they don't take failure lightly versus a student who hears, you know, oh, I love the way you approach that. Oh, you do, you haven't quite gotten that yet, but keep at it. You know, that looks at mistakes and failures as opportunities to learn something. Mm-hmm. And we definitely don't have that as sort of the umbrella approach in our education today. And it's a huge deficit because it's not serving our kids well. And and it translates back into home where these kids don't feel like they can fail at anything or make mistakes with regard to anything. They feel like they need to be perfect. And that's, a, again, big ask. Yeah. And that's a cultural thing, too, here in the U.S., perfection, striving towards perfection, hustling toward more and more. And it's 
detrimental, I think. You know, I think we all need to slow down and live life every day instead of constantly trying to do more and do better Mm -hmm. in that way. You know, there's growth mindset is we're always trying to improve and learn more. And that's very different than just a culture of kind of nothing ever being enough, you know, Um, very different. And I think that starts at home. We can model a growth mindset. We can model making mistakes and what we do with that experience, you know, seeing it and using it as an opportunity. We can show our kids that we're not perfect. And it kind of flies in the face of traditional parenting and and what we know of parenting. But I think it's way more valuable to our kids than trying to look like we have it all together for them. And that that's where they're supposed to go. Oh, Penny, that is our superpower. 100% our superpower as parents. It's interesting because people will bring their kids to me sometimes and, you know, I'll tell them something. They'll be like, and they'll, the kid will do it and it'll be successful for them. And they'll say, I've told them a million times that's what they needed to do. And they didn't listen to me. And it's like, I know, but you, a lot of times as parents, because of that relationship, a kid, again, that autonomy piece, that control Mm -hmm. piece, if it feels like it's being forced on them or they're being told to do it, they tend to resist. If it feels like it's more they're in control, they tend to do it. So as a parent, when we get in there and say, you know, this is what you need to do, honey, well-intentioned as it may be, it's always well-intentioned. The problem is they don't take it well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But what they will do is they will watch us. They will listen to us. And it feels, it does feel kind of like bad parenting sometimes because it's like you're not directly addressing the thing. You're just modeling it, but it's so, so, so important. And, you know, we can all do that. Yeah. And being more verbal, you know, I was just talking with a coaching client the other day about this. We take for granted, I think, as neurotypicals, all of the automatic processes that go on in our heads and in our subconscious and the way we work things out, you know, it's all internal. Mm -hmm. And if we start verbalizing that process in front of our kids, It's helping them to build those skills. It's helping them to recognize that when something is hard, I do X, Y, and Z. Or when something is hard, I really can do it because so many of our kids really struggle with that. They avoid uncomfortable and difficult things. And when you have learning challenges, that's basically avoiding school, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Which we lived. But just really being much more open and transparent and really sharing what's going on in our heads with our kids. Because if they don't see that, they don't recognize that that's happening because it may not be an innate thing that's going on for them. Absolutely. And I think that drives a lot of that miscommunication, misunderstanding where we're just making assumptions about what's going on. Mm -hmm. You know, our kids are doing it with us and we're doing it with our kids and it rarely is helpful. (laughs) in that regard. And one other thing I'd say that I think is a well-intentioned thing that parents say that I've just recently in the last year or so come to realize is really not helpful is to ask kids to do their best. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea behind doing your best is admirable because what we're saying is, you know, you don't have to be perfect. That's the what we're trying to say. But if you've got a kid who's really, really bright, tends to be in this fixed mindset space, tends to be a little bit perfectionistic, it's an impossible ask. You're saying to them, you know, be perfect. That's how they interpret best. Doing my best, well, it's never good enough. And so that drives a lot of procrastination in students is what I've seen. Mm. And I, I think I realized it this past year because 
I think parents were saying it more to their kids, like, hey, you know, this year is really weird and uncomfortable and tough and challenging. So you know what? All I want is for you to do your best. I want you to turn in your assignments. I want you, you know, that kind of message I think was really verbalized widely to our students and maybe from educators as well. And what I saw was just hit the wall, stone cold procrastination and lack of motivation. Yeah. And I think that contributed to it. So it's one of those things, again, really difficult on the parent's side because it's just so easy to say. It's like saying you're so smart. It's, it sounds nice. There's good intention behind it. It's easy. It's automatic. As parents, sometimes we have to check ourselves because our words actually do matter, especially if we're repeating them a lot. Yeah. For me, my way of dealing that with that with my kids, because I'm a problem solver, I'm a type A, I want to get in there, is to say, look, here's what I do. <laughs> when I do it, it's not helpful. I need you to communicate to me when I'm not being helpful there, remind me that I don't want to be doing this. And they've been really good about that. And it does two things. One, it it kind of trains me to be a little bit better. And it also gives them, again, a little bit of control and it makes them realize what I'm in, trying to communicate to them. So I think it opens up a different type of kind of a collaborative communication process with your teenager, which, you know, if you can work on that, only good things come out of that. Yeah, I love that. I love the, you let me know when what I'm doing is not helpful. <laughs> and and my my daughter who's in college has started doing that mm -hmm. with anxiety, you know, and, and I have anxiety too. So I know what she's going through. And still sometimes from the outside of it, you're like, come on, you know, it can be so frustrating. And, and really, I'm the same as you type A, fix it. I want to help mm -hmm. get beyond the problem, right? And I don't want to see my kids struggle. And so she has started saying, you know, that that's not helpful, mom. Yep. That's just not helpful what you're saying or what you're doing. It's just not helpful. And I say, okay, well, what would be helpful? You know, it gives me the cue to kind of step out of my own stuff and be available to what Absolutely. kids need, what that specific kid needs in that specific time. And she would probably cringe if she heard me call her a kid at this point, but <laughs> she's my kiddo, 22 or not. <laughs> oh, I have a 22-year-old too. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of like, oh, I'm not ready to adult, but don't call me a kid, right? Mm -hmm. it's, they're just sort of hovering in that space of transition again, so many transitions. And I think that works too for even younger kids than teenagers. You know, I really want to help you. I'm here. I want to help you do whatever you're struggling with, but you have to let me know how I can help you. You have to let me know if what I'm doing isn't helping you. I think younger kids too can really be effective at that as well a lot of times. And sometimes not. Sometimes they're just going to be over-emotional, overwhelmed, and just stuck. And they're not going to be able to say, oh, what you're doing is not helpful. They're just going to be able to say, ah, you know, screaming and right. trying to get away from it. But, you know, I think many times that really can be helpful for all kids. And it's certainly helpful for us as parents, because one of the things that we struggle with is what their experience is like. And when they can say to us, that's not helpful, it's giving us insight into them and how their brain is working and what they're really struggling with which is, you know, the ultimate right. thing that we need to know. It's a two-way street as well. If we can give them insight into where we're coming from. Mm -hmm. So my go-to to my daughter is always, all right, this is coming from a place of stress and anxiety. You know, I'm worried about 
X. <laughs> and yeah. And that's me offloading my stress onto you. And I apologize, but that's where it's coming from. I love you. I'm worried about you. I can see and understand why that's not helpful. But I also need her to understand, you know, I'm not doing it just to be a crazy woman. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it because there's something about it that's causing an emotional response in me. Mm -hmm. So in that communication process, if you can kind of keep at it, you know, you get sort of this complementary self-regulation that can start to occur yeah. where you can kind of like off ramp before things get out of control, before somebody loses their temper or says something or storms off or whatever the outcome might be that's not helpful. I think we can get better at having challenging, important conversations without it ending in conflict. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that too, it's just setting up again, collaboration mm -hmm. with our kids, which is what that relationship should be. That dynamic should be collaborative, so much more helpful than authoritarian or, you know, commanding that things be so. Right. That never works out well, no. especially with teens, but it, with any kid. I thought it might be fun to wrap up and just mention one thing in each level, so elementary, middle, and high school and college, that parents should either, what's the most important thing to focus on, one thing, or what should we be doing at those different ages? Sure. So elementary, what would be your go-to one piece of advice for elementary for parents? More play, more breaks, less structure, less parental oversight. Mm, yes. Let our kids' brains do what they need to do. They need to be upside down and moving and touching and experiencing and growing. That's how they're learning. Mm -hmm. That is learning. That is learning. Middle school. Middle school, I think middle school is the time that I find a little most stressful because this is particularly where we are right now with remote learning still being a factor, with social distancing, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to your child's social needs because that's the developmental stage where they're very attuned to their peers and social standing, social interactions. They're learning and finessing a lot of stuff and their brain's going through a lot of changes at that point. So being very respectful of their needs socially in those middle school grades. It's a lot of social emotional learning. Mm -hmm. High school? High school autonomy. Mm. You know, this is where we need to start pulling back because if we don't, we're sending our kids off to college not quite ready. Even if they're super bright, even if they have strategies, if they haven't been able to get themselves up in the morning, make appointments for themselves, do all the things, that is on top of what they have to deal with just, you know, dealing with a new roommate, maybe living in a new city, being an independent student, all those things. That's a lot. And I see a lot of really bright kids fall apart that first year. Mm -hmm. So as much independence, I actually tweeted this morning, <laughs> like a what if all parents went on strike one day and didn't wake up their high school students? <laughs> yeah. What would happen? I mean, would like 70% of students be late? Would they be tardy for school that day? I mean, what an interesting thought. Yeah. And how would schools respond to that? But I think we need to think that way is like, okay, so what if we pull back on a few things and what would that look like? And are the expectations even reasonable? So I think giving them as much control so they can, out of that, they will build their confidence 
which is going to drive their confidence up as a student and as an individual. Yeah, it's so time for more scaffolding and less hands-on from parents, too. You know, when we pull back, we're also giving them the message that we think they're capable. Absolutely. Whereas when we're micromanaging, they get the message that we think they're not able. So really, really important there, too. Agree. And lastly, college. Oh, college. Uh, Well, (laughs) you know, I'm in week two of my youngest going off to college. And she's sick. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I know. So, you know, from a college standpoint, I think one of the hardest things is allowing them to really have free reigns and to make a lot of mistakes and to keep those expectations reasonable. We are there for them. I think that's the message we need to say as parents. But we have confidence they can figure it out. So I think the college student needs to go off and be able to say to themselves and believe it, I can handle this. So, you know, I think starting at least that second semester of senior year, that's when at the latest, a lot of these changes need to start being put into place so that, you know, a young person can truly believe I can handle this and know that they have the love and support available to them if they need it. And as parents, we have to tell ourselves, that's my job. My job is more to witness now than to manage. I will witness your life. I will support you. I'll be there when you ask, but I'm not going to come in and do it for you. Yeah. And for those of us who are type A parents, it's really oh, hard so transition. Hard. <laughs> so hard. Like I said, week two. <laughs> I'm not sleeping as well as I usually do. You know, it's just part of the process. I remember when my daughter started college and that first weekend, I get a text with the picture of the washing machine, (laughs) which is like coin operated or something and totally something she's never seen before. And she's like, mom, I need help with my laundry. And I thought, oh boy, (laughs) I have not done my job. Like right away, Uh, it was, she looked at the machine and went, oh, I need mom, right? (laughs) Instead of, oh, I can figure this out. I thought, wow, I didn't do my job well, but you know, and it's an opportunity for us to help them to, you know, we have to put that back. I I had to volley that back and say, what do you think? (laughs) What do you think you should try first? What do you think is potentially going to turn this machine on instead of just saying, and I didn't know the answer. You know, I hadn't, wasn't standing there trying to use that machine either. You know, it was new for me too. I've done coin laundry in 25 years, right? Right. So, you know, it was that instinct to go directly to mom that was the issue there, right? She needed to first try to figure out herself. And then if that was still a problem, hey, I'm totally available, you know, I've got your back instead of, I'm going to figure it out for you. I had the same experience with my daughter. And it took probably that whole first year for her to, it was really her weaning herself off of me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It it was, I think it was a default, like without even thinking, it's like, you need to know about this. I need to ask you about this. I need you to tell me how to do this. Mm -hmm. And again, I did the same thing, kind of put it back and say, "Hmm, I'm pretty sure you can figure this out or whatever. I think it's a comfort level. They have to get comfortable with that. Yeah. And it's funny, her her last semester, she hasn't come back for this last one yet, but the last one where she was at school in her apartment building, she was doing laundry and 
She saw two younger girls who obviously were new to the building staring at the washing machine, and she actually went over and helped them. <laughs> I love she had that. figured it out. And yeah, and she was like, it's not just you. It's hard. Here's <laughs> how you do it. Because she'd been that person, and she really wanted somebody to help her, and there was nobody there at the time, you know? And so that was amazing that she was like, that oh, I recognize it, and I'm going to be helpful, uh. which is just awesome. Yeah, so... We could go on for days about talking about education and our kids, right? But we are so out of time. So I just want to encourage everyone to check out Janine's book and website and coaching that she offers by going to the show notes where we will link everything in that regard, as well as anything that we've talked about resource-wise during our conversation. The show notes for this episode are at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 142 for episode 142. And thank you again so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I know everyone has learned a ton from your wisdom and experience. And with that, we'll end the episode. I'll see everybody next time. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com.